0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Russell. today we have, he is a, a filmmaker and an actor, amongst many other things, and his name is Na'amura. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. Good to have you. And she is, uh, she's a, an actor, she's a theatre director, um, which really doesn't <laughs> do justice because she's the doyen of uh, Malaysian theatre and, of course, the uh, one of the founding members of Instant Cafe, Joakuthas.
1: Hi, Cam Anna. Hi. Hi.
2: Happy hi. birthday at Instant Cafe.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: Thirty-one. You. you don't look a day over. Happy today. birthday to us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, three topics this week. Uh, topic number one will be the senses. Uh, can movies and theatre actually really? illicit senses. Uh, Topic number two is the changing face of the way that we consume television. And finally, topic number three is rewilding revolution. So uh, with topic number one, I want to ask uh, the two of you, because Naa and I, were both filmmakers by training, and we've watched many movies over the years. (laughs) Joe, you're a theater practitioner. You've directed, you've acted in, you've watched a lot of cutting edge theater from around the world. And I want to ask if these mediums and indeed literature can really actually uh, ignite our senses, the senses of of touch, taste, as well as, you know, in film and, and and theater, it's going to be sound. We're not going to necessarily feel the cold or indeed the heat that the settings might be. So I just want to know if we can actually do that. So uh, as an example, I say, I'm I'm a big fan of the British filmmaker, David Lean Mm. and his movie, Dr. Zhivago, which was set mostly in the snows of Russia, but it was shot in Spain at the height of summer.
1: really didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: It didn't look like it. Yeah. So uh, as far as I could see, it would be covered in powdered marble to make Mm. it look like snow. Right. And then they would be wearing fur coats and going, oh, it's really cold. But actually the, the actors were themselves passing out from heat stroke. Mm. Um, and, and it looked beautiful. It looked beautiful. But actually, I don't know if I can say that I, I did truly believe as an audience that it was cold. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, there's a, 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 an essay written by the Polish, the great Polish uh, journalist, Richard Kapuscinski. Um, oh, yeah, about uh, his time in Siberia. Now, mm. Poland would be cold enough to break any of us three.
1: Mm. But uh, Siberia
0: <laughs> Siberia is another order.
1: Cameron use. Highlands will break me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and he said something in, in one of the pieces that he wrote, which critics said, this can never happen. This is physically impossible. Uh, mm. This doesn't happen. And he said that the air was so... The air itself was so thick with cold mm. that when people walked through it, they were they were carving these kind of human-shaped corridors through the mm. air of cold.
1: Mm.
0: And, and that, to me, made me think, oh, wow, I can feel that. That's cold.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's actually right. not
0: possible. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm just wondering from our experiences, uh, and Joe, I'd like to ask you first, because People tend to think that that cinema is the most realistic and the most persuasive of mediums. But I think actually theatre is the one that can really create things. But I'm wondering, you know, in theatre, have you personally been able to create senses of touch and taste of hot and cold? Or or have you seen it done?
1: Yeah. So just before I talk about that, though, I just think uh, what, what you say reminds me of, I think, reading... Uh, the Gulag Archipelago, I think, when I was young, and then the day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. And I think that's when I first became aware of just how cold I could feel uh, reading a book, you know, and and even reading, I think, um, I remember, you know, illicitly reading The Exorcist when I was a child, and feeling literally chills going up and down my body as I was reading it. I mean, of course, that's horror, so it's a bit different. But definitely the Gulag Archipelago. I think, you know, maybe films feel so complete that it gives you such a complete experience that maybe you don't have to use your own imagination as much because there's so much already being given to you. Whereas I think when you read a book, you know, you are filling in all the other things. So you're filling in the feelings, the sensations, the sounds, the... Uh, the, the sensations in your body. And I think books out of everything actually makes you feel and hear and see things more than any other art form. I, I think theater is kind of between film and books, I think. I, I, I still remember, I, I went to see a play in the UK many years ago that was kind of a modern Decameron. So all these people were, was, were hiding from the plague. <laughs> Very fitting when I think about it now. And of course they were always hungry. And so they were always talking about food and they were also talking about what the next meal would be. And I just remember feeling ravenous <laughs> as the play was progressing. You know, that, that interest in food made me just want to go and eat something because of, of the feeling of hunger. And I also remember, I think, one of my favourite moments in a play by um, Leo Preetin, one of my favourite Malaysian playwrights. And there's a play of hers called Ang Tal Mui. And Ang, there's a scene where Ang Tal Mui is talking about eating pork, eating pork ribs. And I remember watching this actress, Janice Cole from Singapore, doing that scene. And as she was eating, talking about eating the pork ribs, and she began to e- imagine eating this pork, and her mouth was literally bulging with pork, even though there was nothing in her mouth. And I could feel my own taste buds beginning to water, uh, watching this actress imagining the sensation she would have of, of eating pork. Um, so I think it's it's all about the act of the imagination, really. I, I think when you, you, you imagine something and then you can feel it yourself mm. happening well, to you.
0: Well, obviously, uh, Joe, now Na'a and I have to burn this radio after what you just uh, what you said about oh. eating pork. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we just change it to chicken. But yeah. uh, but but now, what about you? Have you uh, have you uh, experienced the senses?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I have. And Joe, Joe is quite right. I mean, books. I think it also is which of your senses is easily triggered. And I think a lot of times mm-hmm. it's, um, it is things like hunger and stuff like that, which is more psychological rather than mm-hmm. basing on a, on a particular sense like touch or taste. And your brain then creates that, 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 that feeling. Even if somebody is talking about eating, I could actually get hungry, let alone <coughs> reading or watching on, on, you know, on stage or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I think it's all just those, those triggers. but But... It's all uh, psychological, I think. On occasion, also, it's a kind of empathy. On, on occasion, if I watch something on stage and people seem to act like they're really cold, for a second, I think, I can feel it. Mm-hmm. I can almost empathise. It's not really a feeling of being cold, but, but the, 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 there's a shadow of that, of that feeling. You do feel cold for a second. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. And that, that, that's theatre, I think. It's good acting, basically. I and mean, you're talking about the, the mouthful of pork, right? Causing you to be hungry. I, I think um, a good good acting does that. Mm. Um, cinema, on the other hand, I hope you don't mind me jumping to cinema. I have had an experience where they tried too hard. The cinema is all technology, right? You I mean, all mm. remember Sense Around and um, I think that John Waters. Scratch and Sniff, John Waters' film. But I, I, I went to a cinema with, with my godson because he wanted to watch Aquaman for the, for the 16th time. But this time in something called 4D Superblam or whatever. I can't remember what it was called. It was, at, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was I think, at Mid Valley. And, and it, was, it, was an, uh, it was like a Disney ride, basically. Mm. Whenever Aquaman jumped to the water, they sprayed water on you. Just little, little jets. What? Just little jets. You, you, you get this. And um, every time there's a fight, your chair would go back and forth as though you're actually having a fight. And and when he jumps, your chair goes up and ooh, suddenly down, as though you are making a superhero landing. Thing I found it very intrusive because right. um, I, I felt that, that trying to recreate that um, physically with technology actually takes you out of the film. Mm. Wow. And I th- and I think yeah, I, I think it would be better for you to just use your imagination. Or if there's any, if possible, a film can a film or or, or a book or, or a theatre piece can actually. Trigger your senses um, empathically. That, that's so much better than, than you know being shook and
0: mm. you know
2: having mm. having water sprayed on you. <laughs> well,
0: well uh, we must move on though to um, our second topic: uh, the changing face of the way that we watch television now.
2: Yeah, I think for 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 most of us, this is something which which we go through every day. I mean, since since terrestrial television died, and um, then there was cable, and then streaming. Um, the way we watch things is, is different. Programming is different now. Mm. Um, you don't really get the standalone kind of shows on terrestrial anymore where, you know, the hero, whether it's Magnum P.I. Or, or whoever else, has a girlfriend and <laughs> the next episode, she's gone. You know, everything is like state of grace kind of thing. The whole element of what uh, people like Stephen Botchko created back in the 80s, which is, um, mm. um, they, uh, you know, working from that soap opera um, uh, uh, uh frame where there's a continuing story for the entire 23 episodes. I mean, everything just, just goes on like real life. Suddenly became the more popular way to do things, to tell mm-hmm. stories. And that's changed. When you watch has changed. You don't have to wait every week or you know, even on cable, you still have to wait for things to come on. And now you can binge or not. Um, that has changed a lot. And, and for a lot of people, that's an improvement. Uh, people enjoy it. There's, there's um, the program programming has changed. You can't, on Terrestrial TV, for example, it was extremely difficult for you to adapt really good works of literature. For example, Mm. they they tried with Winds of War and things like, if you guys remember from the 80s, younger viewers, sorry, you have to Google all that. But now it's so much easier. Man Man in the High Castle, Game of Thrones, uh, whatever else that you can imagine, like great books, uh, um, uh, um, Handmaid's Tale, are well adapted into this long form kind of storytelling. And you know, for a lot of us, it seemed rosy. And, and for, 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 for the beam counters, it was great too, because suddenly it was all about subscribers and you don't have to go for commercials, commercial breaks anymore. Um, and, and, you know, to, to depend on ratings and stuff like that, ratings came with also the advent of the internet. You know, you get your reaction straight away from like 10,000 people saying they love the episode. You, you get your, your feedback straight away. Everything has changed. And some, some of it's good. Like, for example, um, this is something that I need to talk to you guys about after the show. Um, people like Netflix are also looking for content all over the world now. They've become... Mm. They realise that, that, that um, um, before, Terrestrial and all that, it was very focused. If it was an American television show, it's an American concept. Very much so. And same with the BBC or whoever else. Mm-hmm. But now there are things like... Netflix is doing things like having pictures where they are looking for stories from around the world because mm. um, they realise that... Um, the the, the the audience you don't have an audience for that one week and you're gone mm-hmm. they stick around and they will rediscover stuff or they will discover stuff on your um, channel for months um, for yeah. years after so, even so 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 but, but you know, not, everything in the library is important yeah
0: but now can I can I jump in and ask the question then.
2: So, I was going to ask you a question, but never mind, yeah.
0: But is it, so is it a good thing? Is it better now than it was before? Or well, was I don't know.
2: Well, that's, that's the thing. Now now certain things have come, come into light which are not really all that good. Like for example, we've always thought like, oh, shows can like survive forever now. We'll have Game of Thrones for seven seasons if that's what it takes. But now, as usual, economics comes into, into view. And I don't know whether you guys know this, but they now realise, all these streaming channels now realise that shows become irrelevant after about four seasons. Mm. Because once they hit hit that four seasons um, mark, Mm. Mm. they barely get any more subscriptions. Mm. So there is no real reason for the show to stick around. The show will get more popular and will have um, everybody, including the the best boy, Grip, will be asking for more money. And yet, yet... financially because it's not about advertising anymore where you can keep on saying this is an A-grade show so, you know, the the advertising hours or minutes uh, get more and more expensive. The show does not get subscribed um, by more people and therefore it does not make any more money unless it's something like Game of Thrones that big where during that, or or Mandalorian, that during that period, literally millions of new subscribers will come in just to subscribe for that period. A lot of shows will have fans but no new fans. So then you you hit that wall again. So it's not that perfect. So you have shows like, like Expanse, which people were beginning to like, but because they hit the four seasons, sci-fi just decided to drop it. They had to go to Amazon in order to continue their later seasons. So you have that thing so, going so on. That,
0: well then Joe, can I ask you, uh, mm. you, uh, I think I know that you watch a little bit of uh, these dramas. Do you, do you think we're in a golden age or? or
2: yeah. Or what not? do you guys feel has changed for, for you? I mean, like, like, is it, better is it worse is it annoying is it you
1: know um actually i'm I'm not a very good tv watcher meaning i don't really keep up with what's kind of the current i tend to watch tv more um as a sort of uh, off too often as as a way just to sleep at night and uh so i tend to re-watch a lot of stuff i tend I re-watch old episodes of especially comedies uh, so I'm, I'm maybe not a very good person. I'll watch some new series once in a while. Like everybody was saying, to me, oh, you might watch The Crown, but I really didn't have any interest in watching things about the British royal family, so I didn't. But I did recently watch A Suitable Boy. And then they did exactly the opposite of what you're saying. now. I, I was really quite disappointed because Suitable Boy is a sprawling epic, right? But they only did six episodes, eight episodes, very few episodes for, us, for us, a book of that, of that size. And I yeah. thought, oh, why would they do that? because it's Netflix, I thought they would um, actually, also it wasn't a Netflix series, I think it was a BBC series. I thought, I thought like do a third
2: would. of the book, do a third of the book, and then like, like
1: just... I, I thought, well, well why do not do at least, at least do 12 episodes, but you know, six to eight, I think it was six or eight episodes, which just felt like far too truncated. Everything got, um, it just became very plot-driven, and you didn't really get a sense of what the book was like. Whereas I think... I know when they did an adaptation of One Piece a few years ago, they I think they did over 21 episodes. It was fantastic. It was a really good adaptation. But I think, because I hate getting addicted to things, and I agree that nowadays when you when you watch, you tend to binge watch. So you start mm-hmm. watching something and then you just can't stop. So I, I hate starting, starting to watch something new because I don't want to get addicted <laughs> to it. Yeah. But it's
2: really interesting because it's going back. Uh, a lot of people I know would get an old box set or would go on YouTube or, or mm-hmm. stream... Um the old stuff because some, somehow it's become comforting again just to watch yeah. standalone little bits, just just that forty five yeah. minutes to just enjoy, say, Charlie's Angels or, or X Files or whatever, and then yeah. not, not have to, 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 to be obsessed with, with a larger story that, that yeah. takes yeah. up so much of your time. So that's interesting yeah. too. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I do I do think it's worth pointing out though that we in Malaysia are you know, Malaysian views are different from uh, American, British, etc. views because terrestrial television in this country was dead long before it was dead. Um, it, it really, have, it, 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 it had no relevance. It had no ambition. It was just, it was just a nothingness, and we only watched it because that was all that. You
1: happened. know, I kind of like that. I kind of like that because I think we ended up watching things that we didn't think we'd have any interest in. And I, I kind of miss that. I, I miss watching things that you don't think you're interested in, but you're watching it because there's nothing else to watch. And then you think, oh, this is quite interesting. I mean, I remember even watching as, as a kid with my sisters, um, the Quran reading competition because we wanted to watch <laughs> something. And it was the only thing on TV during those days and those months when it was, when it was that competition. That's what we watched. <laughs>
0: Well, Joe, you can, watch, you can do uh, that now. Switch off yeah. your internet, uh, cancel <laughs> cancel it, and just go watch television. Go to the I do have a
1: television, though. Well, I, and, I, and I remember being in a, in a hotel room in Tokyo, and, of course, there's not much to watch in Tokyo, and there's, everything's in Japanese. There's very few shows where it's just subtitled and turning on the TV, and a sumo wrestling match came on, and I thought... Why not? I'll watch it, and then I became completely addicted to sumo wrestling. <laughs> really? I know it's really fascinating. It really but it takes is. So long to set up it's each fight. Very, very slow on the ground.
0: Yeah, but, but, it's,
1: like yeah, but yeah, it's like watching cricket. Yeah, but it's like cricket, you know, right? It's all it, all the setups and things are are fascinating. Yeah, but
0: Japanese television is like a hundred channels, and it's fascinating. I love flicking through them. Yeah, but yeah. you know, with motion television, it's pretty bad. So so. Whereas uh, terrestrial TV in the UK, say, is still a very strong market. Yeah, true. And people do still choose to switch on and stay with that television channel all day long.
1: Well, I think if you want religious, moralizing TV, you can't do better than RTM.
0: (laughs) And on that that note, we're going to finish this uh, topic. But... uh, (laughs) I don't know. Tell us what you think, folks. See if uh, you—how do you experience your, your TV these days? But we're going to come back in a moment. This show is really one extreme to the other because we're going to talk about the Rewilding Revolution here on a bit of culture, BFM eighty-nine point nine. And we're back with myself, Cam (coughs) Ruslan, I'm right, and now hello, and now Joe Kukotas is going to tell us about the Rewilding Revolution. What's that, Joe?
1: Two different ways of looking at it. So that the, some people call it the wilding, some people call it the, the rewilding. But basically, it's the idea of um, letting the planet be. But now, because we have not let the planet be what it is for so long, we have to sort of um, make an attempt to let the planet be. So then they call it wilding, allowing the planet to become wild again, or, or in some, as some people call it, let, rewilding the planet. So sometimes they have been quite concerted efforts to to rewild um, sometimes in like f- farm practices you, you see this especially happening as a kind of revolution in in Britain and in other parts of Europe as well where people are saying okay let's see how we can have our farm practices change because you know, people are looking at the ethics of farming the industrialization of farming therefore the treatment of animals in farms and also what gets destroyed you know the, the other ecology which gets destroyed and so a lot of farms are are trying to have a more a wild approach, so you allow your farm to be taken over by um, what is uh, what nature is growing, and you try to see how your farm can live within that ecosystem. And of course, what's happened is that thickets have grown back, forests have grown back, animals have come back, even things like ponies, which they thought were completely, you know extinct from the, from the British wild landscape. Um, otters, beavers, all coming back and doing their own work. And there's this book by um, uh, Isabella Tree, which I thought was a very good name, um, <laughs> called Wilding. And she and her husband, who have a farm called Naps Farm in, in, in West Sussex, decided to again, have their farm, no pesticides, no herbicides, and all kinds of uh, things started happening. And, you know, I think because of this pandemic, a lot of people have started getting very interested again in their, um, in their gardens. Uh, people being at home, if they have any kind of small patch. Just on my street, this, you know, I, I live in a street with terrace houses. So many people have started growing vegetables on my street. I can see kind of trellises going up and uh, vines creeping everywhere. And a friend of mine told me about a show on BBC called Spring Watch. And they do this show every year where journalists go out and they look at what's going on in, in, in Britain in terms of, uh, you know, winter's over, what's coming back, examining, you know, birds, fish, small small animals. And of course, this year, they couldn't do that because they, were, they could no longer work from their studios. So you said you had these reporters just kind of going outside the, into their own back gardens, into their own backyards, into the forest behind their house or in nearby meadow, And looking at what was there, and many of them were really amazed at what they saw. They saw things that they'd never seen before. And because they saw the return of many things, which had been, um, in a way, pushed out by our noisiness, literally by our noisiness, by our presence. And, you know, I think that is making people think, rethink this idea of wilding, which isn't a new idea. But people are beginning Mm -hmm. to think, well, maybe more people should adopt this practice, uh, and now you were, talk- you were talking earlier about, you know, you've just seen like the act of wilding in your own garden. I mean, so, you know, how- yeah. what do well, you do?
2: Well, I-, I have papaya trees now and chili trees. <laughs> and aside from that, um, I think Cam said earlier that, you know, using paraquat and other poisons to kill weeds. I, I really hate that, that practice because um, it kills amphibians for one thing. Because they have very sensitive skin, which absorbs everything. And um, since, since uh, my, my garden has become a bit wilder, I now have three species of frogs, not just the usual one. Mm. Things like that. And I, and I have, you know, like I said earlier, papaya trees and chilies. And it's just fun to do. But what's really interesting is, like, that's happening in Bali right now. Because are, the tourist industry is really dying. Mm. And the Balinese have always had one foot in the past and in, in nature and mm. and you know the spirits of nature and everything. So a lot of them, most of them have gone back to just this subsistence kind of thing where mm. where entire neighborhoods imagine imagine the whole of your section in, in PJ, for example, where everybody grows for everybody else. It becomes yeah. one community and it's subsistence. It's like within that community, there's enough vegetables, there's enough chickens for people to butter and trade or maybe even mm. use money if they want to. But but then you going back to that whole thing where um, entire segments of the population becomes self-contained in a sense of nature where they have Mm. and and they don't have to down anything they don't have to build a new pub or anything like that it's all like everybody then 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 starts growing things or rearing animals so it becomes something that we have to look at that that could be an alternative to yeah
1: to to other kinds there's also kind of inadvertent wilding, right? So things that happen, like for example, they they, they notice that in the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea, mm-hmm. because it's demilitarized and there can't be any human presence there, suddenly it's 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 um, it's become it's gone it's gone wild, and they have yeah right. the same way like Chernobyl. Yes, and in Chernobyl. Chernobyl
2: thousands
1: of, yeah. And bison and lynx in Chernobyl, yeah, in the Chernobyl yeah. exclusion zones. And in, in this demilitarized zone, you have black bear, you have musk deer, you have these rare red-headed cranes and all kinds of birds which they never saw um, before for years. And I, and I also think about this project done by this um, this artist who now lives in Helsinki, Lu- Lucy Davis. And she was doing this project in Singapore about uh, Tanglin Hot, you know, which is an old... Uh, a train station, and that was a train that used to come from Malaysia. And, of course, because that area was protected before, because it, it, it was a train line, all kinds of wildlife was on either side of those train tracks because on either side of the train tracks was kind of secondary forest. And now, of course, once the train system stopped and there's no longer these train stations, now other things are being developed and all the birds are disappearing. Right. So oh. this, is, this is what happens oh, when you... Oh, what a shame. You, yeah. I
2: mean what I'm jealous about Singapore is the fact that, that because the way they what kind of non intrusive um behavior I, I can't even imagine. But now they have they have um urban otters. I love yes. watching the videos of yeah. the urban otters because they don't chase them. They they keep the rivers clean, even the rivers that go through the city. So mm-hmm. now they have these these wonderful urban otters that just scamper around
1: you know all over the city do you know that pangolins used to be kind of common in every garden in Malaysia before my mother used to say that when she was young pangolins were just in people's gardens they were just you just saw them kind of like you know rolling around and nowadays of course you don't see pangolins in even suburban areas let alone urban I think uh, I think uh,
0: pangolins are actually uh, the number one most trafficked yes. yeah. animal yeah. Uh, around. Yeah. But can I, you know, well, hang on a second. With this wilding, let's let's remember, we live in the tropics here. I know ne- you I mentioned Singapore. Singapore likes to imagine it doesn't live in the tropics. But it, <laughs> the thing with the tropics, it, in the UK, the largest carnivore is the badger, which is about the size of a small dog. Mm. Uh, whereas our largest carnivore is a tiger, mm. uh, which is the size of a tiger. And... <laughs> And we have a lot of poisonous snakes. Three big dog. Yeah. Yes, we have a lot of poisonous snakes. Um, we have a lot of wildlife that we, we, we are really not comfortable living next to. So this rewilding, I mean, we can't really be selective about it. It's like, oh, we'll have some of those nice little birds, but we don't want a crocodile. But, but,
1: but we can, we can, can learn from Australia, I think.
0: We can mm-hmm. learn
2: from Australia because they've managed to really um, yeah. have that balance.
1: Yes, or, or you look at what happened. This is, I think, in the 1980s in, in the USA. I mean, I think the famous, the famous example is the one of the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone Park. So when they did that, what, what happened was the wolves were then kept down the elk population. And before this, the elk population was so huge that they were eating all the greenery in sight. And as a result of them eating all the, the trees and the shrubs, all the smaller animals were also dying out. So in fact, there's, a, there's this idea of there's a, they're the predators, but there's something called the meso and the meso predators actually, if they become too big, they eat up all the even the smaller creatures. So you know, mm. there there is a scale, and I think they make you know, a meso you know, out of everything. The, don't yeah, and the rewilding thing is is about saying, well, what is the actual balance, you know, because we've taken things out of balance, and certainly, there is a strong argument to let you know more crocodiles and tigers inhabit. Inhabit uh, our jungles, um, and a friend of mine who who um, kind of works with elephants was saying how so many elephants are being poached, and we're not even aware of it because uh, it's happening deep in the jungles because of um, of logging companies. You know, so I I think that we're a long way I think from having to worry about whether or not we're going to have too many of the species. I, I think yeah. we're pushing out animals really super fast. I mean, even as, you know, for me, as close as, as Bukit Gussing, you know, you can see how the, the kind of hillside development has led to the destruction of the habitat of so many.
2: And, and that is when the snakes, I mean, we're not talking about tigers here in yes. Plano Valley, of course, but it's yeah. when snakes come out and stuff like that. Yeah. Because if you, if you keep enough corridors open and there's definitely <coughs> prey items or those messy, what do you call them, messy mes- and mes- meso things? Um, when there's enough of them and, you're, and your predators have enough food, then you don't yeah. really have a problem. Yes. Of people's goats being eaten, or people being accidentally you know, killed by, by a tiger or a leopard. We, we've, got, actually, we've crossed that line. We've crossed that line to the point where, like Joe said, we don't have to worry about them coming to urban areas anymore. We have to worry about them actually
1: surviving. You were talking earlier about this, this idea of these corridors in your own garden. The cor- which I, can, can you talk about that? I thought that was quite interesting.
2: Oh, it's just something I learned from, from BBC Wildlife, which I recommend, um, an unofficial recommendation magazine. And it says that if you want animals to move, a smaller animal, maybe, maybe even tree shoes and all that, between garden to garden, especially insects, that you keep a frame <coughs> Excuse me, of long, long um, um, grass at the edges of your garden. Sort of like a band of maybe up to you, five inches, ten inches, so that animals use that as a crossing. They're they, they they frightened to go on, on, on trimmed grass. So what you get is you get a movement of animals between. And that, that basically is for another show, because it's a long subject, is what Malaysia start, should start thinking of connecting all our um, parks and things with, with corridors that allow the larger animals to cross, tapirs, yeah. tigers, um, elephants,
1: yeah, and then then everybody they won't else. Gets, be... Yeah, and then they won't be going into your garden <laughs> they, they will yeah. yeah yeah no well,
0: when i when i if when i do stop and think about what's happening in in the forests of malaysia both east and west I mean, it's just a horror show um, it is, yeah it's too sad to even yeah
1: yeah you know, so there was, there was this this thing which i wanted to to, to just quickly share you know that, about you know why we need to think about rewilding very seriously this this is something that uh a novelist uh richard powers said that a uh, hum- huge part of human anxiety is heightened by species loneliness. That, that is the sense that we're here by ourselves and there's no purposeful act except to gratify ourselves. So I think that when, as soon as we start becoming aware that there's others on this earth apart from ourselves, then we don't feel this kind of anxiety that we're currently feeling, this sense of loneliness that we're feeling. So the, the view of rewilders is that rewilding can help us with the anxiety that we're all suffering from. And, you know, I think the human species is suffering, I think, very greatly at the moment from anxiety, depression, loneliness. Um, and this pandemic has made it even worse because mm. we kind of think that we are we are alone and separate from the species, whereas, and this is my recommendation later, but if you watch a program like, like The Octopus Teacher, you realize it's not about taking ourselves out of the equation, but just being aware that there are others in the equation with you.
0: Well, I, and I think that's a great place to stop, well, we'll, we'll put. Um, so I guess, I don't know, if we can think about how to, I mean, I live in an apartment, so I don't know, I can't really do much about it. But, uh, but I, I certainly have started growing things. Um, it's all MCO time. It was just an instinct. As soon as it happened, it was like, oh, I must start growing things. <laughs> it was a bizarre instinct. And, it, mm-hmm, and a lot yeah. of people have been having the same thing. We're going to move on to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations, where you recommend something that we think might be of interest. And I'm going to go first. And my recommendation is, well, if anyone's ever listened to a bit of culture before, this will not come as a surprise. It's a book, um, <laughs> it's a book about David Bowie. He was a singer, uh, a musician. He was very famous once upon a time. And uh, I'm a big fan. Okay, oh, boomer. <laughs> but what what it's called, this book is called strange fascination bowie it's uh, a biography on bowie i i really enjoyed it i thought it was very it really very, it was very insightful but actually in a, in a way what i want to recommend is i read half of it years ago and then i stopped hmm. um huh. and and when i was That's active, for me <laughs> yeah and david bowie was still alive when i read it Oh, right. And then I, st- I, re- I picked it up and started re- re- reading, finishing the second half um, very recently. Of course, David Bowie is now dead. But the in the book, he's still alive. Uh, so it was an unusual experience. Um, and I was also reading about the years of David Bowie that I've never found very interesting, which is like mm. 1983 onwards. And it was actually very fascinating to to read about the times which, to my eyes, were his creative low points. Mm-hmm. Um, but to sort of discover that there was some sort of like personal significance and that, that he'd actually moved into a phase where he may not have been a great creative force, but he was a much happier man.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we're all feeling that as, as, as 50-somethings, that, you know, there's a certain point where you on the outside, it looks as though we're not creating anything, but we are moving on to other things these days, right? But it doesn't mean that you're not doing anything. It's it it, it, it is um, interesting that that happens when you get older. Your yeah. your output is different. Your focus is different. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, okay, boomer. I mean, you know, I'm so, so do I do recommendation
2: commissioner. <laughs> yeah.
0: So anyway, um, I... <laughs> if, so if you if you wanna if you wanna read a book. About oh, uh, David Bowie, uh, and I thought it was really good. It was very insightful, uh, very well. Read. I just
1: love how, I just love how you're showing the book to all your viewers, Cam.
0: Towards the two of you, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs>
1: Who can't see it. <laughs> can't this see is it, radio, Cam. <laughs>
0: yeah, but also if you want to just have a book about David Bowie and hold it in your hands and just walk around and just have. But it.
2: if if Cam says it in the right way, everybody will feel it. Everybody will see a David Bowie.
0: Yes, because as we all know, it's one of the senses. It's the sense mm. of Bowie. And, uh, <laughs> and,
2: uh, and it's, it's possibly, Some people never develop that sense, unfortunately.
0: Poor things. But it's actually the most important sense <laughs> of all. Um, so anyway, we move on, though. Um, so the next recommendation is nah. What's What have you got?
2: Well, what, coincidentally, very, very similar. A, a great man. I, I, I've been reading uh, Sir David Attenborough's Life on Air. Mm. And, and it's uh, everybody knows him i don 't have to explain who he is he, um, but uh, it, it 's not so much it 's more of a professional autobiography because it, mm. it only touches slightly on his personal life, his childhood and stuff like that but I, I, aside from the fact that he 's an amazing person he 's done all kinds of things and, and, and it connects with the whole wilding thing because you know when he talks about nature it just it just pulls you in um, but also it 's very interesting for people like us and people who People are, who are doing radio, all your, all your compatriots okay? Because it talks about the early days of the BBC, when the BBC was totally zero. They had to make up everything as they went on. How do we do a documentary? How do we show musicians on, on, on um, live, on, on camera? And the cameras were terrible, and sound systems were terrible. And it's an interesting way to see how television... Um, in the after the war, in, in the late forties and fifties, just literally came out of the ground from zero. How all the tropes that we now consider uh, uh, normal for, for 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 the BBC or, or any kind of television began in those days, and, and he was very much a part of it. They would literally say. let's create something new and they would have to figure out what works and what doesn't. And that, that part is incredibly, incredibly fascinating. Aside from the fact that he's been all over the world, he's seen the planet in its um, in in ways that that we will never see again in the fifties and sixties places, even like places which are familiar to a lot of people like Australia was so different, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, 70 years ago, uh, 60, 70 years ago. So it's a great book, Life on Air,
0: Sir David Attenborough. Who's still with us and i hope for many many more years i i love david attenborough i mean he's just yeah amazing yeah. Uh, he is and one of the one of his great skills just simply as a communicator as as a, a voiceover person the, it's it's he's able to to just i don't know just sort of like tell a story through his words and his voice and it's just amazing
2: it's his passion, and, and it's not even it's not even an actor. It's very sincere passion for mm. what he's talking about. And you know, he almost didn't become David Attenborough, the guy who was supposed to be the face of 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 nature, of nature programming in the BBC. Uh, unfortunately, died after a few shows, so David had to take over. And people hated David. Has this little anecdote where. As an interviewer, when he finally saw his notes years later in the BBC, when he was a big-time producer, they said, "Do not use David Attenborough as an interviewer anymore. His teeth are too big." <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, they needed him. <laughs> unfortunately, fortunately for us, um, he then took over the the the, the nature uh, as a nature host for the BBC, mm. and he never looked back. And yeah. Wow. yeah wonderful
0: person wonderful person so that's yeah. uh david attenborough's uh, life, in life life on air life on, on air uh, and uh Joe, what do you got
1: well to continue the nature theme um, I, I want to recommend a documentary film uh called my Octopus Teacher, which I think I mentioned earlier and it's uh it's an incredible piece of documentary filmmaking um, about a um, a disillusioned, um, uh nature documentary maker who returns to his native South Africa to sort of regroup, rethink, you know, cause he sees, I think he's suffering from what people call ecological grief and he thinks there's nothing else he can do really to, um, with what's going on with the planet, so he goes back to his native South Africa, to a place he used to go to as a as as a young man, and which is but right at the tip of, of 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 the of the horn, I think, and the waters are very wild, very very rough, and he start, he decides to go diving, and in his dive, he which is in the, the, these kelp forests, and these kelp forests are amazing; they are forests, so they are as complex as any forest um, above above water. He meets an octopus, and they become friends and it the documentary is about this relationship that they have and essentially what he feels he learns in this relationship with this octopus i don't want to tell you any more because it'll, yeah, the, the it'll give it away
2: a documentary too apparently.
1: yes, yes. <laughs> okay but it's really
0: everything the human says yeah well okay
1: <laughs> ignoring that for a moment it is really beautiful Sounds wonderful. you know yeah. it's, it, Sounds wonderful. N- uh, n- uh, you'll just you'll just it's magic. And, and you you watch it kind of being completely immersed in that world. And of course, you're going underwater, so it's a very silent world, which is, I think, even more lovely. I think because the world feels so noisy, and um, and it's so unexpected. And you wonder how they. And then, of course, you also ask yourself yourself how they shot it. Um, so I think even as a piece of documentary making, it's really quite remarkable. Mm. But the story. Oh, What's he called
2: again, Joe? My, my octopus teacher.
1: Yeah yeah but it, it's it's on netflix
0: yeah yeah um jo, you've been you've been telling me for some time to watch it and i and i haven't because i'm i'm kind of like afraid that it's i don't know if i'm emotionally able to approach something it sounds like it's going to be i don't know
1: it's i mean of course the thing is what you i don't want to oversell it and then you watch it and you and you feel kind of disappointed but i think like I love the sea i love under, I love the world underwater um I love things to do with creatures, you know, so I think this relationship
2: the more think, limbs, the better you know?
1: yes, and the more, an octopus was a, such incredibly intelligent creatures yeah. right but I think I think what what I felt about the film was that it's like it it is a kind of way of looking at conservation to not say that we have that we have no place it's to say we all have a place, and I think that's what I loved about the film that it it was um. It's just having this knowledge that we have to just learn to not be alone as a species, mm. but to connect to other species, and we ha- we need that we have we all of us need that connection to another living, breathing creature that is not human. Mm.
0: Okay, so that's uh, my octopus teacher, which is available on Netflix, and uh, which um, I will check it out. And uh, <laughs> but that that brings us to the end of this week's show. Um, I want to thank uh, Na'a Naamurat, who, unfortunately, we didn't have a great connection with Na'a. We may have lost a few things that he said. That's
2: all right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have to uh, subscribe to get the full version.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: to naamurad.com. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and also to Jo Kokatas, so she of the wind chimes, I should have said. Here, a lot of wind chimes in the background there.
1: Right, yes. Yeah. That's my wind. Very breezy day, what can mm. I say?
0: And I wish also that uh, listeners, uh, obviously cannot, but could see uh, Joe's little garden, which is very small in uh, PJ, but it's uh, grow. you're growing things to eat and you have yeah. beautiful trees that you've planted.
1: I mean, I'm growing things to eat that I wasn't even trying to grow, which is really quite 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 nice and I kind of think like this potato which I which I planted which then sprouted many potato leaves a sweet potato and then grew potatoes but I realized some other animal must have come and dropped a different kind of potato because I realized now it's different from the potato I planted which means oh, okay. that mystery yeah, <laughs> potato yeah mystery potatoes well, so well
2: I'll be getting rambutan soon so my rambutan oh, tree so yes. so, you, so you guys can have as many as you want
1: well mm-hmm. I, I collected some rambutans from fallen rambutans from my neighbor from my neighborhood today uh See there. I collected these from the ground. A uh, and a rambutan. Some rambutans today in my walk. Plant the
2: seeds. The rambutan seeds, Joe. You may. You never know. You may get Unfortunately,
1: lucky. my 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 landlord doesn't like me to put trees in into the trees. Earth. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the, right. the garden's really small. Not a lot so. of space. Yeah. yeah, rambutan, yeah. yeah. Ramb, can be ramb,
0: quite big. And very big, and they take a long time to grow. So, yeah. um uh well, okay. Anyway, we must uh wrap up now. So, thank you very much, the two of you, and thank you, everyone. It's pleasure. There. for for listening and please join us next week for another exciting episode of a bit of culture here on bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station